Okay, we're back. We're back. We're back, folks. It's happening. It's happening again. Dragging the Lake, episode seven. Um, pretty excited for today because we're actually going to do something different um, than usual. Uh, of course, the usual format for these solo episodes uh, are always to uh, come in with some essential items, uh, essential albums, come in with some personal favorites, personal influences that have changed the trajectory of my fandom, my musical tastes, perhaps even something deeper, uh, some causing some personal reflection or anything like that. Um, and then, of course, there's also a topic, usually, that I will get into uh, to sort of guide a discussion that maybe would have uh, would have begun on the previous episode with the guest, maybe something that's going to bleed over into the next episode with the guest. Uh, today, we're actually going to forego the personal uh, albums in favor of getting directly into a topic um, because I figured it might be time to talk about my favorite band, why they are my favorite band, and what each album means to me as long as, you know, how I feel about that album. So I'm going to go over some essentials first, but then we're going to get into a two-parter uh, this episode and then probably episode nine. going to be talking about my top Every Time I Die albums, counting their first EP, The Last or, uh, the Burial Plot Bidding War, uh, not counting their EP Salem, because Salem, most of those songs appeared on other albums. Uh, I think there was a, a cover of Tourette's by Nirvana, which is actually really great. I love that song, love Nirvana, love In You love every time I die so it all came together for something I really enjoy but there may have only been like one original song on that EP so there's really not much point in talking about it um, but today we're gonna do my top or my bottom five I should say um, and we're also going to go over these essentials. Uh, next week, we should have a guest. I guess it's very close to my heart, actually a family member of mine. Um, and we'll be getting into some discussions about some things that are important to him. Probably get some reflection on Every Time I Die as well, because they're one of his favorite bands. Um, but for today, we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, because I really want to spend some time talking about Every Time I Die. So uh, let's begin with our essentials. Um, again... As always, what I'm talking about when I say essentials are uh, albums that I think are important to the canon of heavy metal music, uh, something that perhaps was very influential on the development of the genre uh, historically, something like, you know, your Black Sabbaths we've talked about, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, uh, bands like that that kind of come up anytime you talk about heavy metal music. They're the ones that you look to as sort of a bedrock. Um, but essential can also mean something that marks a major departure for the genre or reaches a sort of high point for the genre um, or maybe the birth of a new genre entirely. Um, and I think that really applies to two of the three albums that I'm talking about here, which, you know, maybe aren't going to show up in your, you know, your usual top 100 albums of all metal or whatever sort of listicle sort of thing like that. It's probably not something that everybody's going to agree on is like a great album or an album that's going to stand the test of time, although I would argue that they probably should in one way or another. Um, but these are albums that mark a departure. Uh, they mark something new, something exciting, uh, a new pinnacle, perhaps, in what people are intending to do when they create this kind of music. Um, so let's jump right into that with one that I find to be a high point, uh, just in terms of raw heaviness. Now, what do we mean by heavy? 
right? Part of the point of doing this entire show is sort of exploring um, sort of the discursive elements around heavy metal music, that with the terminology that we use, um, we tend to take these words for granted, like heaviness. Um, but when I talk about heaviness, I talk about just how well it communicates an emotion that is visceral, intense, and often negative. Um, a negative emotion meaning sorrow, meaning anger, meaning hatred, uh, dejection, things that are, you kind of want to avoid, right? The opposite of pleasure. Uh, they're integral to the human experience, yes, but they're not things that you are actively seeking out unless you are a masochist, um, which I guess if we're fans of this kind of music, maybe in a sense we are, um, because I think that it's important to feel these emotions uh, through art uh, in order to reflect your own emotions in order to, for you to reflect on those emotions uh, and also to learn something about those emotions and what they might mean to you uh, and what might bring those about to you. So when I say heaviness, I mean something that brings about those feelings in a way that is if not tangible, because it's sonic, uh, but it's something you can directly point to, something that's laid bare, something obvious, something you can share with another person, something that you would be internal that you have externalized through art. Um, and so when I say that this is probably the heaviest album I've ever felt in my life, uh, I do mean feel, right? I do mean that when I listen to this album, it brings me to a place uh, of extreme anger, extreme dejection, uh, even bordering, bordering on hatred, uh, which is not a feeling that I feel very frequently in my personal life, um, really, if ever. Uh, but I certainly feel it through this album. And I'm talking about the album Caustic by Primitive Man. Uh, this is a newer album, so whenever we say essentials, a lot of the times we're talking about things that were established in the canon years ago. Um, it's kind of hard to call something a classic when it's only been around for five years like this album because we don't know how it's going to stand up throughout time. But at this point, I would honestly say that this is the high point. This is where metal is at its heaviest. Um, and it probably is not obvious, I guess, that it would come through doom metal. A lot of the times when people think of heavy albums, they think of death metal, they think of grindcore, things that are extremely fast, uh, things that are extremely aggressive in that sense. But I think doom metal lends itself to heaviness, probably more so than those, because it allows the feeling to breathe. Uh, and this album really does let you sit and stew and breathe in deeply what they are trying to communicate. And as a doom metal album, they spend a lot of time lingering on riffs, lingering on notes, lingering on power chords, and in this case, lingering on just noise which is impressive. Um, they, they did say that they were influenced by noise music, harsh noise, um, because in this case especially, noise is a great way to communicate feelings of grief, anger, hatred, uh, depression, things like that, 
but without taking it to a quote-unquote higher level of communication. And by higher, I mean verbal. Uh, there's not really anything you can glean from the vocals in this because they are so harsh and so drowned out by the wall of sound uh, that they are creating. Uh, you can't really take much from the, the verbal language of this, but you can take a whole lot from the harshness of the sound, harshness of the feedback that sometimes they will linger on for minutes at a time, which is an impressive feat and it's also an impressive bit of patience that you, they are forcing you uh, to take on. You must be patient with this album. You must go through the ordeal of this album. It is not something to take lightly. It is not something you can just put on and enjoy. It's something that you have to sit and really, really steep in in order to understand what they're trying to communicate to you. Learning the backstory of this album uh, really illustrates where that all comes from. Um, these artists are generally poor and working class people. Uh, one, of the, one of the primary songwriters is in fact a teacher uh, in Denver, Colorado, and he says that a lot of this album and a lot of their music generally just comes out of the feelings of gentrification, watching it happen in front of them, uh, watching the destruction of a scene, the DIY scene that, that was so important to them as young musicians, and as fans, and even promoters, uh, seeing that go away in favor of a more corporate environment, an environment catered toward people who do not have a social tie uh, to Denver. Uh, it, which is something I think that if you live in a city in America and not a rural town, even though perhaps in some rural towns you are experiencing this, but over the last 15 to 20 years, you've seen this corporatized uh, blandness, uh, a sort of uh, all-encompassing feeling that you've been here before every time you go to a new city. It's why sometimes I don't get excited to go on vacation. I don't get excited to travel because any city is going to have a trendy district that looks exactly like the trendy district in my city and in every other city in the country. Uh, and that feeling uh, is dark. That feeling is not lonely, but it's certainly one that drains the life out of you. It's crushing rather than a super intense, fast-paced, um, you know, full of blood and guts and vigor like you might get out of death metal. It's, again, crushing. And this album is indeed crushing. Uh, and, and I think that they really, really did an incredible job of communicating with the audience here. Um, non-verbally, like I said, because it doesn't always have to be verbal. In fact, I think that some things are best communicated non-verbally, uh, this album being one of them. It would be one thing if they had a polemic against gentrification, against uh, the rising cost of living, forcing out working-class people from their neighborhoods, from their cities, making them less likely to interact with their city. Um, many people write those polemics, and they're important, and they're vital. Yes, yes, yes. But Art has a way of touching you in a way that a polemic does not. It does not speak to you intellectually. It speaks to you on a more animalistic plane. Um, and this is indeed an animalistic, violent, crushing album. I keep using the word crushing because I can't stress it enough. Um, it's one that I suggest everybody subject themselves to because it's something that it sort of proves that great art is frequently not enjoyable. I don't think that anything about this album is enjoyable. Um, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? Because 
those feelings that they're feeling that they're translating through the music and into you that you then uh, try to learn from them that's not a pleasant feeling and it doesn't have to be pleasant to be good but to move on to something that is more pleasant, I guess, on its face, uh, is an album that maybe could also be called Doom in some senses, but I think it's more groovy than it is Doomy, uh, and that is Nola by Down. Um, another album sort of about poverty, an album about the uh, afflictions visited upon people who are living uh, at the bottom end of a somewhat opulent, somewhat successful in some ways society. Uh, New Orleans isn't really known for being an opulent city. It is known for being a party town, obviously, uh, but it's not like you know Martha's Vineyard or anything like that. Uh, but it is an album about people living on the crusts, an album about people who are living in the cracks of this society uh, and what it makes them feel and, and their experiences with the drugs and their experiences with depression and suicidality. Um, and it, it honestly is sort of impressive reading the lyrics and knowing the place that these people were in writing this album. Uh, it's impressive that it is as groovy and as enjoyable just as a listen uh, as it is, because it is quite enjoyable. Um, this is 1995 with Phil Anselmo and Kirk Weinstein, two great artists, uh, Anselmo being a total shithead who I cannot in any way uh, endorse outside of his bands. Regrettably, I don't want to give the guy credit. Nobody who lifts up a Sieg Heil salute, uh, you can't just say, well, I was drunk and I was upset, so I did that. Fuck you, Phil. <laughs> you don't get to get away with screaming white power in a, in a crowd and then everybody say, oh, it's okay, he was just mad. It's okay, he's had a hard life. No, it is not okay. Um, and it will never be okay, but... Uh, I have a hard time with this sort of thing, this whole separating the art from the artist, but what I will say is I have yet to hear whatever his racial um, beliefs are or his racial sensitivities or lack thereof, I've yet to really hear that in his music. The closest thing to it is probably five minutes alone off of uh, Pantera's album. Uh, God, I'm forgetting the name right now. That's embarrassing. Uh, but Five Minutes Alone by Pantera is a hell of a shit kicker of a song, but it was, of course, written uh, because a fan of theirs was beaten up in the crowd. Uh, they claim it was a hate crime because he was a black man and that Phil instructed the crowd to beat him up. And of course, this album was saying that's actually racist, that you would suggest that I'm racist um, because Phil is an asshole. Um, and Phil is a racist, as it seems like most of Pantera was, unfortunately. Um, but that does not bleed over into this album, so I want to talk about this album. Uh, and frankly, unfortunately, there's not really that much to say other than the fact that it is a fucking jam. And I think that doesn't have as much to do with Phil as it does with the rest of the band, which is a super group. Um, again, Kirk Weinstein from Crowbar being probably my favorite uh, member of the band. Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity is also in the band. Fantastic southern sludgy band. Um, and they all came together to create this just slab of, of 
nasty, swampy goo. Um, and it's it really is just this swampy mess of an album that somehow manages to really effectively communicate in spite of all of that swampy amorphousness. Um, and what it communicates is, again, this feeling of... Uh, uh, dejection, this feeling of being left out of society, polite society, successful society. Uh, and I think more than anything, what it's trying to commute, uh, communicate is that you can survive through spite. Um, a lot of this album is focused on suicide or suicidal ideation or a feeling that you have lost something in your life that you may not ever regain, but you are continuing anyway because fuck you, I want to continue. I want to survive. I'm going to survive in spite of myself. And dear listener, that's something I can relate to. Um, this is not the personal album section. Again, I'm not doing that this week. Um, but this album does touch me on that level as well because I, you know we've all gone through issues in our life. We've all got our own battles that we've had to fight internally and externally. Um, my own issues, my own suicidality, my own anxieties and depression, I have been able to f fight off, at least in my youth, purely out of spite. Um, and this album captures that feeling very well, that you may feel so low that you may not ever get out of it. And you may fantasize about your death, uh, but you are going to continue on because you feel that nothing can take your life except for yourself. And if you just flat out refuse to do that, then you can flip the bird to any of those feelings. That's what I get from this album. That's what I get from Down. Uh, what I get from down also is, again, just shit-kicking southern swampy metal. And it's so fun, and it's so good. And in fact, in the future, I keep promising that I'm going to cover certain topics in the future, and I hope that I'll be able to get around to it. But one thing that I want to cover in the future is this 90s and early 2000s sludgy, swampy southern metal. Uh, as somebody from the American South, I can really relate to that sonically. Not entirely sure what it is that people in the South can relate to there, um, but there is something, and I'd like to tease that out someday. Um, but this album is extremely Southern, and it is extremely heavy, uh, and again, extremely fun. Moving on to something else that's pretty fun, but for a different reason, uh, is Dying Fetus's classic album, Destroy the Opposition which came out around the same time as NOLA. They might have even come out in the same year. I'm not sure. Um, but what it is, is perhaps, don't quote me on this, dear listener, but it might be the first real deathcore album. And I'm sure a lot of the death metal purists out there, if they are listening, if anyone is listening, I have no idea if anybody even listens to this podcast other than myself, because I just do this for fun. Um, but... A lot of death metal purists hate deathcore, and frankly, I'm not entirely sure why. It's probably because with any niche genre, with any sort of niche interest, uh, people feel very protective over it. You know, I'm also a fan of combat sports, mixed martial arts, that sort of thing. I'm a fan of uh, sci-fi and fantasy, which of course now are not even really niche anymore. They are just sort of mainstream. Um, but I, I'm a fan of a lot of things that perhaps wouldn't be popular in most settings. They're not really acceptable to the broader public. You know, you don't put on a dying fetus album and expect just anybody to listen to it. You'll never hear it on the, on the radio. Um, but because of that, the people who are into it feel a sense of ownership over it. And they feel a sense that it should cater to them specifically because for a long time they have been the only audience. 
this album somehow manages to straddle the line between the purists and, I believe, the people who are most influenced by it, which are, indeed, the deathcore bands of the 2000s. Bands that were extremely influential for my tastes because I was one of the Hot Topic kids who listened to Whitechapel and As As Blood Runs Black, Black Dahlia Murder, etc. Still love Whitechapel and Black Dahlia Murder, by by the way, especially the latter, R.I.P. Trevor Sternhead. But this album, I believe, bridges that gap because it is a death metal album that is not afraid to groove. It's not afraid to slow down. It's not afraid to let the riff take over. Uh, And, you know, not everything needs to be fast, folks. Not everything needs to be fast to be heavy. And in fact, at a certain point, speed for speed's sake stops being interesting. Uh, And sometimes you need to get back to a groove that perhaps is more prevalent in hardcore, where they have breakdowns, where they have simplistic riffs that you can nod your head to, or headbang to, and not throw out your neck because you're trying to keep up with an incredible tempo like you would with regular death metal. Uh, But this album fascinating for that reason when you consider it historically, contextually, but it's also an impressive album just on its own merits. Uh, The guitar playing is phenomenal. Really, all the instrumentation is phenomenal. The vocals are a little strange as Dying Fetus, you know, their vocals just are strange. It's more of a belching sound than anything, Uh, but it works given the context, Uh, especially when you consider that this is a three-piece band. It gets more impressive because the guitar playing is done at the same time as the vocals and the guitar playing oscillates between these crunchy, groovy, sort of almost hardcore riffs into the really incredible technical shredding uh, that you don't hear on subsequent albums of its type. You certainly don't hear a lot of shredding in deathcore um, unless you're talking about the the latest Lorna Shore stuff, which I fucking love, but it is um, excessive. (laughs) And this album is not excessive. I think it hits just the right notes and it's an album that has gone down as a classic amongst death metal fans for good reason because it still maintains its roots while also opening the door for the future for good or ill maybe you don't like what came after this that was influenced by this that's fine it's your taste you're allowed to have your taste but what you cannot deny is the fact that it is important for future generations to pick up and try something new otherwise art really has no purpose because you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over And if you are a fan of art, and if you respect the art, then I think you'll be able to hear something like this and what came afterward, and just respect the fact that, hey, the kids heard this and they wanted to try something new. Maybe it's not for me, maybe it's just for those kids, but good for them. That's what I would hope that people would do anyway, but I don't exactly always have faith in it, because again, we're dealing with niche fans. As somebody said, uh, I believe it was John, who's my guest on episode four, uh, said that this is the kind of album that when you listen to it, you just sort of spontaneously generate camo cargo shorts, uh, which is true. And also the sign that you're not dealing with uh, the most intellectual fans, I suppose that would be the shorthand for for not dealing with uh, people who think of this intellectually or think of this on a deeper level other than throwing up the horns and nodding your head and banging your head and jumping around in a mosh pit. Um, Having been at a Dying Fetus show, though, I can say it's a hell of a lot of fun to get into a mosh pit at one of their shows. 
Well, that's all I have for the essential albums. I actually burned through that uh, pretty quickly, it felt like, but I'm looking at the runtime, and it looks like I did actually let this breathe a little bit, which is good, because uh, I feel like these albums really deserve it. This is some of my favorite uh, essentials that I've done, because I think that when I was talking about these essentials, I tend to dip back into the canon, the sort of classically understood great albums, quote-unquote. Um, but these are ones that perhaps haven't gotten recognized by most mainstream publications as great albums, uh, but they are favorites of mine, and I, I do believe that they merit an inclusion when you're talking about essential albums, great metal albums, significant metal albums that were a turning point for the genre. Um, so give it a try, please, if you haven't. Um, please let me know what you think about them. As always, I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can reach me at, at Lake Dragging on Twitter, and I would love to hear your thoughts. Moving on to our next segment uh, for the day, uh, something that's a bit of a labor of love. Uh, this is something that I've been thinking about doing for a while uh, with a number of bands, but what I'm planning to do now is to go through uh, the discography from my favorite band, Every Time I Die. Uh, and you may be wondering, why Every Time I Die? You know, they're, they're not the best metalcore band of all time. Um, metalcore metal itself is not really a genre that a lot of people heap praise on, um, but it's one that I enjoy a great deal. It's one that I sort of grew up around. Uh, and then this band is a really personal band to me, uh, not because they are the best, not because their instrumentation is, you know, uniquely great. It's not because their songs are uniquely great. Uh, I think they're good. Uh, there's not an album on here that I think is bad in any objective quality, actually. Uh, but they are a band that reflect my own sort of neuroses. Uh, I think that lyrically uh, you hear a lot of things that I can deeply relate to. Uh, the music itself uh, lends itself to a sort of emotional state that I can relate to a great deal. Um, it's just a band that has been around in my life since I really became a fan of the heavier side of things, you know, not just a fan of classic rock and not even just a fan of, you know, your Metallicas and, and you know, your sort of baseline metal bands. Um, and starting with number 10 here, uh, because I'm not talking about their EP, Salem, because there's only one unique song on there, I think, as I said at the beginning of the episode. Uh, but we will start at number 10, because there are 10 uh, releases I would like to talk about here. We're going to go with uh, the album that, in one way or another, kind of introduced me to them. It's Gutter Phenomenon, uh, from 2005. Not their strongest album overall, um, but it is one with some pretty defined high points, namely uh, The New Black, which was my introduction to them, the very first song I heard from them. One, it is a bonus song on Guitar Hero 2, which I was very much into when it came out. Uh, also was showed up on Headbangers Ball, uh, which I've talked about before, introducing me to bands like Mastodon. And that video is still uh, pretty popular, that song pretty popular, if you saw them live, unfortunately they have since split up as a band, but if, if you saw them live, you know that the fans kind of go a little nuts for that one. Uh, it, it showed up on the early days of YouTube being pretty popular on there. And overall, just a really fun, really enjoyable track uh, to this day. 
Um, even though it sounds almost nothing like anything else they've ever made, uh, because this album, the reason why it's at the bottom of my list, the reason why it's bottom on a lot of people's lists, even one that the band themselves don't seem particularly proud of, it's a bit of a cash grab. You know, this came out again, 2005, uh, third wave of emo is in full swing. You've got bands like My Chemical Romance blowing up and really making it, uh, making it into a phenomenon, a sensation. And, I mean, hell, Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance shows up on this album, on the track Kill the Music, which is another high point of the album, I think. Um, it's not a bad album. It's just one that I think is particularly insecure. It's one where they pretty clearly do not know who they want to be yet, uh, but they do know the market that they want to tap into. They know that they want to be on Van's Warped Tour a lot, and they were. And this album shows that, you know, they fit. They may fit there, but they may not have their own identity yet, um, which is something that I think they figured out on their next album to an extent. Uh, but this is the beginning of their second era, the era where they were in the process of separating themselves from that East Coast metalcore, the classic era of metalcore uh, scene. And... You know, it's an admirable effort in that way, but it is really just them jumping from one clear influence to another clear influence. Uh, and in this case, I think a lesser influence. Worth noting that this album highlights an issue with the band generally, something that they would always sort of struggle with, which is that Keith is clearly writing the lyrics independently from the songs themselves, which doesn't sound like such an issue, but the problem that it lends itself to is that the vocal patterns and the lyrical uh, cadence do not match the actual music. Uh, it sounds like he's just sort of cramming these words that he's put down for a song in between the song, um, which can, can be a bit of an issue. It can be a bit jarring. It kind of keeps you from really sinking into the song. But, you know, Gutter Phenomenon here at number 10, as I said, I don't really think that they have a bad album necessarily, uh, but this is definitely the weakest of them. Moving on to the next one is their actual debut EP, um, first release of theirs other than their demo that they shopped around. Uh, this is one that, as I was saying about Gutter Phenomenon, they, they had a very clear influence here. They were clearly not secure in who they were individually. Um, and uh, this was a pure metalcore album of its era. Um, production quality is extremely poor, which I actually think lends something to the album because, you know, that era of metalcore was extremely chaotic. Um, there was a whole lot going on, breakneck pace, lots of riffs thrown in there. Um, when the band talks about this album and the next album I'll be talking about, they look back and say, you know, gosh, what were we thinking? There were a million riffs in one song. You can't really get hooked on anything. I think that's a bit unfair because... The high points of the album, uh, namely Morphine Season, Your Touch versus Death, uh, they do have segments of the songs that are maybe a little more melodic, uh, maybe break the tempo a bit, break the pacing of the song a bit, and do give the listener an opportunity to sink into it, to, um, to get grabbed by something instead of just being tossed all over the place. This album is extremely dark. 
I think that's worth noting. Um, there is, again, the production quality adding something to that, that it just feels really dark, really grim, um, really brooding. Uh, and the chaos of it is, oddly enough, perhaps more composed um, than their next release. Um, which I enjoy. I thought that this would be an album that ranked higher. Uh, just like Gutter Phenomenon, I really thought that these would be higher on my list, but they are albums that the high points, the things that I remembered about them, the nostalgia of them, um, because this is a, a very hipstery pick, <laughs> burial plot bidding more, because uh, a lot of people don't really think of this when they think of Every Time I Die. Um, I thought it would be higher on my list, but the, once you sit and listen to it with intention, front to back, it can be a bit grating, it can get a bit old, it can feel a bit samey. Um, and on that note, we can move to the next album on the list, uh, my number eight selection, which is The Last Night in Town, their debut LP, um, which is a more consistent album than the, uh, than the EP that came before it. Um, it's one that is equally chaotic, and in fact, maybe even more so, to the point where a lot of people incorrectly identify this as a uh, mathcore album. I don't think that really works. Uh, I don't think of this as a mathcore album. I think it's just pure chaos, for whatever it's worth. Um, it's an album that I was... I was not. Ex I thought this would be at the bottom. I didn't expect to enjoy this album as much as I did. It's not one that I look back back on really fondly. It's not one that I revisit really ever, uh, because when I thought about it, I just remembered it being absolute chaos. Really, this sort of almost sophomoric album, where they were clearly not attempting to write songs. They were attempting to um, put the listener in a very confused, uh, very disconcerted place. But there were more grooves than I expected more points where you could sort of get hooked on the song memorable moments on songs like emergency broadcast syndrome nothing dreadful ever happens which is an interesting little piece for this early era uh, and punch drunk punk rock romance there's also a song on here called logic of the crocodiles i believe it's the only song that has a music video from this album uh, it actually has a brief appearance by howard jones of killswitch engage fame uh, before he was in Killswitch, which is just a fun bit of trivia, uh, and it is a fun song. Um, and the album itself can be fun. It's it's more melodic in parts than I expected. As I said, it's groovier in parts than I expected. And you can get hooked into this album. You just gotta really kind of pay attention, because otherwise it can feel like everything is getting drowned out, uh, which is an issue uh, at times with their first era, which this was in the middle of. Uh, Moving on, number seven, uh, an album that maybe is controversial for it being so low on my list, because um, I think a lot of people, I, I know a lot of people say that this is their best album, uh, that this is their, their preferred album, and I can see why, because closing out the end of their second era, uh, the one started with Gutter Phenomenon, we have New Junk Aesthetic. Um, it's an album that I think is a solid B-plus all the way through. I think it's a survey of that second era of um, gutter phenomenon, Big Dirty, and New Junk Aesthetic. It was an opportunity to them, for them to figure out who they were. And I think this was the album where they finally came to some conclusions about who they were and how to integrate all of their influences into one album. The problem is that they may have figured that out, but they haven't figured out how to make it pop. It's, uh, it's, an, it's an issue, I think, with this middle era 
um, that there are there are high points, uh, and the high points are pretty impressive. But for the most part, what you're getting is a pretty consistent um, chunk of music that is it kind of bleeds together unless you listen to it repeatedly the way that I have over the years unless you're really really familiar with these albums uh, it's all gonna feel a bit samey uh, each album has its own unique flavor gutter phenomenon obviously has that emo influence the big dirty which I'll be talking about has that more southern that more classic rock influence the new junk aesthetic uh, it sort of starts to separate itself um, but it's sort of the apotheosis of those it's sort of a combination uh, of everything that they have done up to that point so if you are a fan of their early stuff if you are a fan of that first and second era then this would clearly be a standout album for you because you're kind of getting a bit of everything you're getting a survey um and i enjoy that i enjoy the survey but in order to rank highly on this list i want to hear something more than just a survey um, if you're wanting to get a feel for the album, if you want to get some high points, some tracks that will give you an idea of what you're in for, uh, White Smoke, which is, I think, one of their stronger songs generally, Wanderlust, which perfectly solid song until the end. I think it closes out very strongly. Very impressive song there at the end. And then Goddamn Kids These Days, which is... A really good song, but also uh, a bit of a window into their psyche at the time. This was the second album in a row where they end their album with a sort of lament for what they've done musically, for the influences that they've had over music, which I find interesting because I didn't really think of them as... Uh, the most influential band in the world up at this point. Um, we're talking about, you know, closing out the, the aughts, the 2000s, uh, and I, I kind of feel like the next wave had really yet to coalesce. Uh, but I could be wrong. I'm not sure who exactly they're referring to. Maybe it's your bands like Maylene and the Sons of Disaster, uh, somebody like that. But I think for the most part, they really stand out on their own, and I can't think of people who even sound like them at all, which might be their, their frustration, is that they are seemingly influential, but nobody quite hits the notes that they do. Uh, moving on to close out today's episode with our number six, um, and also to close the book on their second era, is The Big Dirty. Uh, the Big Dirty is an album that I've talked about before. I talked about it as a hugely influential album for me as a fan. Um, one of my personal favorite albums, one that I enjoy a great deal. Um, but it's an album that I think needs to rank below the top five uh, because, again, there's not that many high points on this album. There are high points, but they don't stick out that far ahead of the rest of the songs. Um, it's more of an album that more defined by its deep cuts than by its standout singles. Uh, those standout singles, again, very impressive. In Rehab, A Gentleman's Sport, No Son of Mine, even the breakdown on Cities and Years, which they're not a band that really leans on. On breakdowns, but when they do have them, holy shit, do they hit. Um, it's an album that I don't 
need to spend that much time on. If you're interested, you can go back and listen to uh, my previous episode where I discussed it. But this is an album where it's notable for their career because this is where they really shed their early influences and, in their words, start to embrace influences that they've always kind of wanted to embrace but just never had the confidence to or never really felt like they were free to. Um, It's an album that is very clearly influenced by Southern rock, uh, clearly influenced by classic rock. They said they're big fans of both, and they really wanted to make it a point to uh, integrate those sounds into this album. And I think it works. Uh, I do. I really think it works. I think you get that sort of rubbery, sort of slinky, sort of groovy uh, guitar playing in a way that you maybe didn't get before. You maybe had a hint of it on Gutter Phenomenon, but it wasn't something I fully committed to until The Big Dirty. And that's really a style of playing that stuck for the rest of their career. So if you really want to see the moment where they start to break from those old influences and start to build on influences of their own... This is the album, Um, but I think that I have to rate their third act, their third era, uh, beginning after New Junk Aesthetic, higher than this second wave, because that wave, that third era, uh, is an era that contrasts itself by not really sounding too much like it's influenced by anything. Uh, It sounds like them fully-fledged, fully confident, um, fully their own band in a way that you don't quite hear on the Big Dirty, even if they're choosing their influences with more intention they are still choosing their influences and modeling themselves after those influences. Uh, Impressive achievement, impressive album, fantastic album. I think all of these are good albums. Um, The only one that doesn't seem to get any critical praise at all is um, Gutter Phenomenon um, because it's so transparently uh, not really them being all that inspired. Um, But I just think that the difference between their greatest albums and the albums that I just think are good uh, are their ability to separate themselves and be something totally new, something different, something undefinable. And I think that at their strongest, you can't really define them as anything other than what they are. So I'd say give it a listen. Uh, it's it's all of these albums are good. I think that going back and listening to those al- those songs that I identified as high points will at least give you a look into what you're missing out on if you've missed out on it at all. Uh, and then if anything hooks you, give it an, another try. Give it give it a deeper dive because there are some really strong deep cuts uh, in this in this pack. And if you like anything in here, if you don't like them, if you find anything notable, or if you're curious about why I ranked something over another that I didn't cover on the episode, feel free to hit me up. I'm on Twitter again at, at Lake Dragging. Always happy to have more discussion. Always happy to foster more of the community. Uh, the entire purpose of this podcast is to get into why we are fans, what we uh, think about this music, um, what it means for us, sort of defining the terms that we all share and defining the canon that uh, I think we might, you know, that maybe we should care more about um, and not just accepting the canon from the sort of legacy uh, publications and legacy critics. 
but that's all I got for today. Uh, I'm looking forward to next week. I'll be having a, a fun conversation uh, with my cousin Robert, uh, another big Every Time I Die fan, another big metal fan, a guy who honestly influenced a lot of my fandom growing up. So be on the lookout for that. We're going to have a great conversation, um, as we always do on this show, and I can't wait to hear the results, just like I can't wait to hear from you all. So have a great week, and I will see you next time.